We continue in our study of First Peter, taking up where we left off last time. First Peter three verses thirteen through seventeen. The Scripture says, "Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled." But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come once again under the reading and hearing of the sacred text, your word, once for all delivered to the saints. You anointed and guided the holy apostles to write down your word, as your blessed spirit inspired, led, and guided them. Every word was superintended by your spirit. Now, as we dig into this passage, grant us the guidance and the understanding that comes by your spirit and graft your word into our minds and hearts. Continue to transform our lives and conform us more into the image of our blessed Savior, in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Peter was an elder and a pastor in the early church. He knew his people well. He knew that some of them were being persecuted for their faith. They were living in pagan areas in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, Peter, more than once in his own life, had lost courage. And he denied he knew Jesus. And later, because of the fear of man, he compromised his commitment to a salvation based solely on the grace of God apart from human religious works. But Peter repented, and he was restored by the Lord Jesus to his position of spiritual leadership in the early Christian churches. And therefore, as a forgiven man, Peter intended to teach and instruct those believers over whom he had charge to be faithful to God and not yield to human opinions and pressures that were contrary to God and His will. The pagan world was not friendly to the Christian faith. What Peter is teaching his people, what he was teaching his people then and he's teaching us now, is that if we honor Christ as the Holy Lord in our hearts, we'll be liberated from the oppressive and sinful interference of other humans who would seek to steer us away from Christ and steer us into their own camps. 
They would yank us away from Christ and put us once more into their fellowship of captivity to sin and Satan. Have you ever felt pressure from friends, family, or co-workers to compromise your Christian beliefs and moral standards and yield to their way of thinking and their lifestyle? I think we all have experienced this kind of pressure from time to time in one way or another. It's not likely to cease either. But as Christian soldiers in the world who march under the banner of Jesus Christ, we have to be like that man in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress who was called valiant for the truth. We need to be valiant for the truth in the face of opposition to the truth. Well, how can we be brave and courageous living in a world that is opposed to Jesus Christ? Jesus was brave and courageous in our behalf, and we, by His grace, need to be the same for His cause, for His kingdom, for His church on earth. Our passage today, 1 Peter 3, 13-17, gives us some solid help along these lines. It answers this question, how can we be true and faithful Christians? I want to give you five ways that this passage tells us that. The first three are preliminary, building up to the last two, which are really the key thoughts, the main ideas in this passage. Well, first of all, we read in verse 13, Peter writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So the first way that we can be true and faithful Christians is to be zealous for what is good. There's plenty of evil in the world, but our calling is to be zealous for what is good. To be zealous, not half-hearted or nonchalant about the good things of God. What is good and wholesome and helpful should delight us and be something that we would always pursue. The Lord Jesus is our example in this. For example, in Luke 22, 15, he said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He was eager to have that last Passover meal with his disciples. Why was he so eager? Well, I think it's because he would be formally instituting the new covenant, the sign of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, which in a few hours he would seal with his shed blood on Calvary's cross. He was eager to meet, eat this meal even though it led to his suffering. But his suffering would be the means of securing the salvation of his elect and beloved people and his opportunity to fulfill the Father's will and bring glory to him. He was zealous for the Father's will. He was zealous for glorifying God. He was zealous for doing what is good. So we need to follow his example. This is a high calling that we have. It's not an easy calling. But it's our calling as Christian people. But we're not alone in this calling. We have God's Spirit. We have God's Word. We have God's people the church, to aid us, to help us, to spur us on in this great 
endeavor, this great adventure of living our lives on planet earth for the glory of God. Hallelujah. He would take vessels of clay, sinners forgiven, and use us for his glory. What a great and blessed calling we have. So we need to be zealous for what is good. So we go on to verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So the second way that we can be true and faithful servants of Christ is we may need to suffer for righteousness' sake. You know, suffering for righteousness' sake seems to be part of the Christian package. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's going to come, most likely sooner or later, our way. People don't like Christians, people of the world, because of our stand for Christ Jesus, for His Word, for His way of life. The darkness prefers more darkness. And doesn't want the light to come in and expose its evil. Just leave me alone in my darkness. Is what people are really thinking. So they mock Christians. They persecute those who are living in the light. But our situation is not so bad. Because the text goes on to say this in verse 14. That if we suffer for righteousness sake you'll be blessed. Blessed through suffering. Well, the persecution may hurt, may wound our bodies, it may take away our jobs, who knows. But there's reward for the Christians who endure this suffering. Reward that far outweighs any suffering we may have to endure in this life. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, we may be persecuted, but what do we gain? We gain heaven. Peter says in his own letter, 1 Peter 2.20, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God gives us the grace to do good and perhaps suffer for doing good. He also says in 1 Peter 4, 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're not cursed. You're blessed by God because the Spirit of God and of glory rest upon you. So verse 14, he goes on to say, Do not fear, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So a third way that we can be true and faithful Christians is not to fear, not to be afraid of the opponents of the gospel of Christ. Even though we may suffer persecution, we need not fear our persecutors. It's because of this. We have a greater fear than fear of them. What follows in verse uh, 15 is this. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the idea here is not fearing man, 
but fearing and honoring Christ. Peter was evidently adapting, quoting from a verse or two in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, which says this, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, for Yahweh of hosts, but Yahweh of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. So, don't be afraid of man, but have a healthy reverence and fear of Yahweh. Old Testament prophets echo this same kind of godly fearlessness that God's people should have before evil people. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of them that is of your countrymen. Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Or in Isaiah 51, verse 12, Yahweh says, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten Yahweh, your maker, who stretched out the heavens. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul and hell. So Christ gives us freedom from the fear of being persecuted or counted unjust for our righteous acts serving God. Well, now we come to the climax, to the, the main idea that I believe is in this passage. To be true and faithful Christians, we need to Verse 15, this verse 15 is so great. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. So how are we to be a true and faithful Christian? By honoring Christ as Lord in our hearts. See, this is a heart issue we're talking about. It's not about material things, Ford, but about spiritual things. Things in the heart and mind. What is vital to a person's relationship with God is not external rites, that is, religious ceremonies, but what is crucial is internal reality, deep within the human soul, the human person, at the core of his being, to have a vital living relationship with God. Do you have that relationship? If not, you can have it by crying out to Jesus Christ and asking Him to save you and make you His child. That's His business. To hear such cries and answer them in the affirmative. Yes, He will receive you. He said, I will in no wise cast you out if you come to me. Well, we, we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. It doesn't matter where we do this. It doesn't matter where we worship. It doesn't matter what kind of building we may meet in. We don't even need a building. One time I worshiped with a group of Christians out in the, a yard in uh, India. 
We don't need a building, but we do, we do need a heart in tune with God, sensitive to God, submitted to God and to His Spirit. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not the building, but the gathering of the people that makes a church. It's an assembly of called out people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In our hearts, the scripture says in verse 15, we're to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, honor the Lord as holy is literally sanctify. Sanctify Him. To sanctify the Lord in our hearts. That is to set Him apart. To venerate Him. To worship Him. To adore Him. By doing this, the fear of man dissipates. It goes away. King James actually says it quite well. The King James Version says this. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man who asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Other translations say it like this, the NIV, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Reverence Him, in other words. Or uh, New American Standard Bible says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The Christian Standard Bible says, but in your hearts regard, that is, sanctify, set apart Christ the Lord as whole. So sanctify basically means to set something apart. In biblical language, it means to set something apart for God. It can be even physical things, the tabernacle, the in the wilderness, the uh, articles of worship there. Uh, priests were sanctified, set apart for service. For example, Leviticus 21.8 talks about the inauguration of the priest in Israel, Aaron and his descendants, Yahweh said this, you shall sanctify him, that is the priest, set him apart, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, set apart for you, the priest, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, set you apart also, I am holy. In Numbers chapter 20, we see an example where Moses did not hold the Lord as holy. He was told, he was supposed to command the rock to bring forth water in the wilderness. He got impatient and he struck the rock. He got mad. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So he was not able to go into the promised land because he got mad. He didn't hold the Lord as holy. He didn't hold the Lord's will as holy. He wanted to do his own thing, his own human anger. God is indeed holy. 
He's set apart from sinful humanity. He's high and exalted above us. So we need to recognize Him and set Him apart as such in our hearts. Psalm 99.3 says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Psalm 111.9, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Ezekiel 36.23, Yahweh says, I will vindicate the holiness of My great name. Well, the reality of God's holiness is seen in many places in the Bible. For example, in the disciples' model prayer, Jesus said, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Set apart, holy is your name. The Virgin Mary honored God's holiness. She said in Luke one forty nine, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She had a real grasp of the holiness of God. So we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Set Him apart as holy. This whole concept of sanctification is used in various related ways in the New Testament. For example, Jesus said in John 17, 17, regarding His disciples, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is saying, the truth, the word of God, sanctifies them. It sets them apart as they receive the word of God. It does the same for us. It sets us apart. We involve ourselves in the reading, the listening, the meditation on the word of God. Hebrews 9, verse 13 says, If the blood of goats goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, that it sets them apart for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the sacrificial animals, yes, they were sanctified. They were set apart for holy use. But their effectiveness was only limited. It was only a temporary. It was a reminder of sin, a temporary covering of sin until Jesus would come in human history and pour out His blood, the Holy Son of God's blood, which was effective absolutely and totally to erase, to remove the sins of His people. So... To be a true and faithful Christian, whether back then in Asia Minor or today in our own context, we need to sanctify or honor Christ as Lord in our hearts. When we fear Christ, when we sanctify Him, when we honor Him, we will not fear people or fear those who would cause us to suffer unjustly for our faith. Ideally, we wouldn't fear by the grace of God. Let me read you what a couple of uh, theologians said about this. They said, to, to fear God and fear no other 
being has bred courage in moral conflict and in Christian witness and has, has invested in the Christian a commitment with an eternal perspective that is not easily seduced by opinion polls and social fads. In other words, if we fear the Lord in our hearts, we're not going to be swayed, swept along by every social fad that comes our way. This is precisely the kind of spiritual backbone that Peter is trying to build into his readers. At the end of the day, it depends utterly on a view of God that brooks no rivals. In other words, nothing, nobody can compare with God with his holiness. What can man do to me if I trust in the Lord? He says, always being prepared. Here's the second great idea here. Besides setting apart, Christ, setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, but always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. This is one way we set Christ apart as Lord, by defending Him, by defending His gospel. To be prepared to make a defense. That is an apology. A defense, an explanation, a speech in defense of our faith. Paul talks about defending the faith. He said in, in 2 Timothy 4, 16, At my first defense no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He was a chosen instrument to stand up to declare the gospel to the pagan world. At one point in his life, everybody deserted him. He had to stand alone. But most of the time, he had the support of the church. Philippians 1.15, Most of the brothers, writes Paul, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Well, he says, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. says to anyone. means we should not hold back our gospel sharing from anyone that we may meet. No one is too lowly in society or too high in society to be exempt from our sincere sharing the gospel with them as the Lord may open the door. Maybe it's the yard man. Maybe it's your doctor. Maybe it's a homeless person on the street. Maybe it's the plumber that comes to repair your faucet. Maybe it's the neighbor next door. Maybe it's the vice president of the bank. We should have the same attitude and alertness of Paul who said, I have become all things to all people that, I, that by all means I might save some. When he was in jail in Rome, all the jailers were getting saved. Caesar's household. 
He says, be ready to give an offense for anyone who asks you for a reason. Now, the word ask here suggests ordinary conversation as we go about our daily lives. Rubbing shoulders with various people out in the city, in our neighborhood. Not a formal defense of the gospel as Paul gave. So in our daily lives, be open, be alert. Pray, God, give me a chance to speak of Christ to somebody today. Paul prayed for that. He asked the, the Christian to pray for him that, that he had boldness. He wasn't bold all the time. He needed Holy Spirit boldness to have the courage to speak the gospel. And he says, anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, we need to use reason. Christianity is not unreasonable. It's the most reasonable religion or philosophy on earth. Why is it the most reasonable? Because it recognizes there's a creator God before whom we all must live and answer. It recognizes the depth and depravity of human sin. It recognizes the necessity of a savior to rescue men and women from their sin. And it recognizes the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead which proved that he was indeed the Son of God who came to overcome death and purchase forgiveness of sins for his people. No other religion or philosophy on earth recognizes these things except Christianity. Acts 17, 2 and 3 says, Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them in the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. What was he doing? He was going back to the scriptures and showing these Jews the prophecies of the Messiah. And he showed how it was fulfilled in Jesus. He said, look, it happened. You've got to believe in him. God has sent his son. So when we talk to people, we need to reason with them also. Talk to them from the scriptures. Tell them the great truths of the Christian gospel, Jesus coming, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present high priestly ministry. In Acts chapter 18, it says, They came to Ephesus, and Paul left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. He explained to them how this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, was the promised long-awaited Messiah, the one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he went around doing good and healed all those who were oppressed by the devil. So when people ask us, we need to be able to give reasons for the hope that we have. What is this hope that we have? Well, Paul said, for example, in Acts 23, 6, 
It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. That was Paul's hope. And again he says in Acts 26, 6, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Peter himself at the very beginning of this letter says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is our hope? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our salvation. That is our justification. That is our sanctification. If Christ was not raised from the dead, we are all sunk. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. But Christ has risen from the dead. What is the hope of the Christian? Paul says in Romans 5.2, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is we're going to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when He returns. Galatians 5.5 Through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We have a lot of great hopes. The hope of righteousness. That we'll see the righteous Savior and we'll be completely clothed with righteousness. Every vestige, every taint of sin will be removed. And Titus 1.2 In the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Our hope is also in eternal life. And again in Timothy 2.13, we are wa- what are we waiting for as Christians? He says, waiting for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have tremendous things to hope for. So we should share these when people ask us. What do you believe? What is your faith? Are you a Christian? Yet, how do we do it? It says, do it with gentleness and respect. Not with a contentious spirit. Not rolling over people with the power of our argument. But with gentleness and respect. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 2 Timothy 2.25 Correcting our opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Titus talks about Avoiding quarreling. He says, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he goes on in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This idea is repeated several times in Peter's letter. Let your good behavior... Justify your life before the pagans. They won't be able to deny it. He says in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not your glory, not my glory, but the Father's glory. They see something is in that man, that woman's life that is amazing. I wonder what it is. It's the grace of God. Verse 17. Peter says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Sometimes we may have to suffer for doing good. But we don't want to suffer for doing evil. Alan Stibbs says that in the circumstances that cause us to suffer for righteousness' sake, we should maintain true heart reverence for Christ as Lord and be ready openly to confess our Christian hope. So how do we honor Christ as Lord in our hearts? How do we sanctify Him in our hearts, set Him apart as holy? Well, we need to be zealous for what is good. We may need to suffer for righteousness' sake, if God calls us to do that. And we should not fear the opponents of the gospel. But the two main things that I want us to understand today is that we need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart. We need to set him apart as Lord. He's our master, our king, our ruler. We look to him for his guidance. We look to him to please him, to honor him, and not fear the words or the looks or the criticism of people. So we need to honor him as Lord, and we need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope. Well, this is a high calling. But we have the grace of God with us to help us. So may the Lord, by His kind and rich grace, help us in the face of opposers and enemies of the gospel to develop more and more and to this kind of a true and faithful Christian who honors Christ as Lord in our hearts and is ready to make a defense for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed calling of service in your name. Lord, you've pulled us out of the world, out of our sins, and put us on that path to heaven which nothing will be able to knock us off of. You're with us every step of the way. You strengthen us when we're weak. You forgive us when we sin. You continue to use us in your service. Lord, strengthen us in our inner man that we may more and more honor Christ as Lord and Open up doors, we pray, that we can speak the gospel to others. We bless and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.